and welcome. My name is Emily Walsh Martin, and I'm the host of The Issue on the ASGCT Podcast Network. For those of you who don't know me, 2024 will mark a decade of my career spent in gene and cell therapy program leadership and management. Before that, I spent a decade in small molecule siRNA and therapeutic protein drug development. So when ASGCT approached me to host this podcast, I quickly realized that I had an opportunity to provide a service. Specifically, I could try to demystify topics that frankly blew my mind when I was just starting out as a program lead on an AAV-delivered zinc finger gene editing program so many years ago. So that's what we'll try to do. Over the next few months, we are gonna have conversations with old colleagues and new friends. We will talk about how we got to where we are personally, as well as as an industry, and more importantly, what we've learned along the way. And since all of my career has been working on cross-functional teams, we'll be surveying the gene and cell therapy landscape from a cross-functional perspective. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you'll stick around. Before we get started, the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy is the largest, most comprehensive membership community dedicated to cell and gene therapy. Now is the perfect time to join and or renew your membership. If the simple act of joining isn't its own reward, here are five additional reasons why you should join right now. Number one, membership will be valid from the date you join until the end of 2024. Number two, Publication discounts are available to you for the molecular therapy family of journals. Three, free virtual events throughout the year. Four, fantastic registration discounts on some of my favorite events like the Policy Summit and the Spotlight on Immuno-Oncology. But most importantly, registration for the 27th annual meeting is now open and ASGC team members can save up to $385 on registration. The meeting is May 7th through 11th in Baltimore, and this is the one meeting you need every year to keep up to date on advancements in our field. And now, back to our conversation on the issue brought to you on the ASGCT Podcast Network. Welcome to our first episode, and our guest is Dr. Michael Story from Nationwide Children's Hospital. Um, today, we're going to dive into the patient experience and try to build a connection between cell and gene therapy developers and the patients they are ultimately trying to serve. Um, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Um, how, how are you today? Doing well? Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Great. Um, on your LinkedIn uh, uh, your role at Nationwide is listed as medication use strategist. Help decrypt that for folks. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so I, I wear a variety of different hats around the organization. And so as we were trying to put the right title into it, this title kind of came to the surface. Um, I also coordinate the operations of our pharmacy and therapeutics committee at the organization. And then I lead the onboarding of various therapies around the organization. So certainly gene and cell therapy are a major part of that role, but I also um, am involved in onboarding other new therapies like vaccines and 
other things that are used much more broadly than some gene therapies that may be used for more rare diseases. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And, and when you say, you know, onboarding them, like what, what does that sort of entail for you? Um, yeah. So I, I, I work with, I work with the manufacturers and I work with the clinicians at the hospital to say, what do we need organizationally to be able to offer this therapy to our patients? And then I work within the operations team and with our finance team here at the hospital to say, what guardrails do we need to put up? And then what infrastructure needs to be created in order to make these therapies available in a way that is sustainable, um, but also making sure that we are prioritizing patient access. And so I really say I sit at the nexus of finance operations and clinical work as I see patients and am involved in clinical team meetings. But I also I also am working with our finance team and with our operations team to make sure that we have what we need to make sure we create sustainable programs. Got it. So, you know, from from what you said there, just to double click on it, it's it's sort of like everything from making sure you have the right minus 80 freezer set up, probably to uh, knitting together uh, all the steps in um, getting the uh, approval, uh, the prior approval if if needed for the therapy and then uh, going that final uh, step to actually getting the the patient, the therapy administered. Is that is that the way to think about it? Yeah, so I, I might see the patient when they're first in clinic um, and have a conversation with them about you know, what this process looks like um, with the insurance and then also with just the, some of the logistics um, at a patient appropriate level. And then, yeah, making sure that we have everything we need in the pharmacy um, and making sure that we have a plan for how we're going to be able to take care of these patients longitudinally in the clinic and working with our operations team to make sure that we have clinic space and everything else that's necessary to do that. And really just trying to make sure that we can kind of get ahead of some of these things. It's good to know before a drug gets approved, what does our patient uh, volume look like? What does um, what where what do what do these patients look like in terms of where they live and everything like that? Um, what are any special needs that this patient population might have? And, and being able to communicate that within the organization. So it's really important that we have you know, advanced planning for some of these therapies so that we're able to provide them effectively to patients and, and, and feel prepared when they, when they come. Certainly there will always be learnings as we give initial doses of a drug or, or any other therapy to a patient, but we definitely want to try to be as prepared as possible. And a lot of that comes with pre-planning. Absolutely. So it it sounds like so you know and remind me you you have a, a pharmacy degree uh, so so it, it sounds like you're really sort mm -hmm. of uh, sort of flying high flying low in terms of uh, probably some parts of your job are super technical and some parts are inherently meant to uh, detechnify right uh, to so that you can communicate with patients better and make sure that they understand uh, the the big picture. Yeah, I certainly have to be able to take. They understand the, the nuance of the details. And so I think a lot of people may sit in one world or another and they'll say, you know, I'm a clinician, but I'm not going to, you know, I don't, I don't either want to know about the finances or I don't know about the finances. And I have to be able to kind of take what I'm hearing from our finance team and be able to translate that to them. And then similarly, you know, when I, when I'm working with our clinical team, be able to take that information and to communicate you know, the level of urgency, um, the, um, you know, the patient's clinical status to our finance team and, and really make sure that everybody stays on the same page. 
and, and everything. Um, you know, and also working, you know, with drug manufacturers. There's certain nuances around, you know, drug distribution and uh, supply chain that, you know, the average clinician is certainly not going to be familiar with. And being able to navigate all of that is, I think, a really important thing to make sure that we're able to offer these therapies. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, the next question I had for you is, is probably a tough one, which is what's a, what's a day in the life of your job like, because you're, <laughs> it probably depends. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely no typical day. Um, I, I certainly have days where I spend more time in a clinic or in meetings. Um, there's definitely project days where I'm, you know, involved with writing SOPs, filing prior authorizations, um, working with um, working on keeping things current for our pharmacy and therapeutics committee. So there's, there's a lot of different things that I'm doing, but I, I most days come into the office and working and, and, and working with a variety of different people around the organization. And I think that's what I like. I really like the variety of my job in that I can be in a meeting, you know, one hour with a patient. And then in the next hour, I can be in a meeting with our senior executive team having a conversation. And, and that ability to, you know, move between those different areas is really quite is really quite interesting and fascinating. So yeah, no, I I, I get that as well. That that definitely resonates with me. Um, so what brought you to this career? Did like, uh, <laughs> like, and, yeah. and how did you how did you get to where you are? So I, I was exposed to pharmacy when I was really young. My mom's a pharmacist. Um, I went to lots of pharmacy conferences with her, not necessarily at all related to what I do today, but I, I got to know a lot of pharmacists. And I, I think what I really liked was kind of this, this nexus of um, having um, some of this business acumen involved while at the same time still having a clinical role. And so um, I originally like wanted to own my own pharmacy and stuff, which is something that 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 desire disappeared in pharmacy school. But I really got to see how um, I can be involved in patient care. And that was something that was much more interesting to me. And nonetheless, you know, kind of that that business stuff was still there for me. And I was still very interested in continuing that. So after pharmacy school, I did a pharmacy administration residency, which is something that um, several sites around the country offer. Um, I did that at Ohio State, which is one of the long established programs here in Columbus. Um, after that, I came to Nationwide Children's, held a variety of operational and clinical roles, um, clinical operation and clinical management roles before moving into my current role. And so I I think through all those experiences, I developed a lot of relationships around the organization. Um, I was managing our oncology um, pharmacy services as well as our infusion services. And so being able to kind of, you know, understand those and a lot of the clinicians who interface with those areas, I think helped me be successful in this role once I transitioned into this role. Um, I think it's also it also is important to note that I started this role um, January 1st of 2017, which was uh, just a couple of weeks after um, Spinraza, Nusinersen was approved. And with that approval, it really, I think, ignited some of the energy around high cost therapies around the organization. And even though that's not perhaps what many would consider to be a classically a gene or cell therapy, um, started a lot of the conversations that I think have continued at organizations uh, that now are being had about gene and cell therapies. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think you, um, 
there are definitely a few products out there that while they may not strictly be gene and cell therapies, certainly uh, share a lot of the same complexities um, and um, and uh, require the same level of thoughtfulness uh, sort of in in sort of getting getting that final step of access completed for for patients. Yeah, I mean, I think with nusinersen, for example, um, with the intrathecal route um, and the need for, you know, then having a provider available to who's credentialed to give that therapy um, made it a lot more complicated than, you know, having an oral therapy um, approved or something like that, that, you know, you kind of would send the prescription or dispense the prescription from the pharmacy, but there's not as much of a, a rate limiting step of having that provider available um, and then, you know, the ongoing nature of these therapies as well um, adds a different level of complexity. Um, but definitely, um, you know, now with gene and cell therapies, we have similar challenges with making sure that um, we have everybody who is available and, you know, thinking about that even more longitudinally beyond that infusion date about how we're going to be able to take care of those patients. Yeah. And I guess just from my point of view as a developer, you know, one of the things I know that development teams that I work on think a lot about is that uh, sort of that final step of, of administration, right? And the complexities of, you know, maybe needing additional um, uh, expertises in the room to 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 do that, et cetera, which obviously is the, would be the case for an intrathecal or some sort of intracerebral therapy. That certainly is probably a big challenge for accessing novel cell and gene therapies. Are there others in your mind beyond that that are are really important ones? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that one is making sure that you have the ability to make sure that you get IV access and good IV access. Um, you know, I think one of the things for us that we do um, with gene therapies is that we require that the patient has two IV access points, for example, um, because, you know, we know these therapies, you get one shot. And so the, if the potential that a patient were to lose IV access, we need to be able to immediately resume that infusion. Um, the potential that, you know, we could have that drug expire and it's not like anybody is keeping more of this on their shelf to, you know, continue the infusion later that day or something, if that product were to expire. So there's a lot of different things like that, that we really have to be thinking about. And I, I think that's, that's been something that we've, you know, had to put a lot of thought into as we've been planning out our gene and cell therapy plans. You know, I think one of the things with, as we think about like, you know, that last step is really thinking about what are the supplies that are needed? Um, what are, what is the preparation process look like? Where is that preparation going to happen? Um, so, you know, with some of the cell therapies, for example, we have pretty short thaw times from the time that something is thawed until it, until it needs to be infused. So you have to make sure that that is be able to be done locally. Absolutely. You know, one of the things you just said there was the concept of, of different kinds of expert, right? Like uh, it, it's not just the expert of the frozen material that uh, drug development teams uh, obviously have to think about, but they also need to think about the sort of in-use stability, which is what you're talking about in terms of the time it takes between thaw and administration and, and how long can that be, uh, how long can it be extended to give you know, teams on your side of uh, uh, of the coin, the uh, enough time to be effective in administering at the end of the day. Yeah. So, I mean, basically you have, you have the stability of the frozen product, which is obviously as it comes. Um, in most cases, it's frozen. 
Um, some cases we get it refrigerated and everything, but in most cases we're talking about a frozen product. And then you have the stability of that once it's thawed, but still in the original storage container. And then you have the stability after it's drawn out of that and into a syringe or put into a bag and, and, and what that is. And so it's important to be able to articulate all of those and then understand, are these expiries the time that, you know, for the finished product, for example, is this time by which it needs to be hung or the time by, by which the infusion needs to be finished? And so being able to, you know, spell all of that out so that our team throughout the process is aware of that is really important. So if you have a cell therapy that maybe only is stable for 30 minutes, that may inform where that needs to be prepared, whether that's at the bedside or in a pharmacy space very proximal to that, for example, um, or if you have something that it's good for six hours, but it, it may take two, three, or four hours to infuse, you need to be aware that pauses in that infusion or, you know, delays in starting that infusion could impact that and, and how you need to be thinking about all of those things. And so, you know, for us, we make sure that everything is ready to go before we thaw a drug. So communication is obviously critical to say, okay, we're all set to go. Now we begin and that clock can start to tick because we, we, we don't want to end up in a situation where we have obviously one of these therapies that is no longer useful for this patient, which obviously for a cell therapy, that might be the only option because it's the, you know, they only were able to make one dose or for right. a, you know, a gene therapy, you know, an, like an AAV therapy, for example, you now may have to delay that therapy and certainly you can't repeat it. And so it's really important that we that we have all of that well thought out and well planned so that everyone um, is ready to go. Absolutely. So uh, any other sort of major challenges that you see um, uh, in terms of getting patient access to novel uh, gene and cell therapies? Yeah. So, well, I think I think one of the other you know challenges I think that you and I have talked about a little bit in the past, too, is around how exactly it's supplied to the to the provider. And so, you know, a lot of times people think, well, it doesn't matter how many vials we do, you know, in the clinical trials, they were able to manage it that way. But there are actual real access implications to having too many vials, for example. Many smaller hospitals, maybe these are not the places that you did your original clinical trials, but if you're if you're a you know trial sponsor, you may be going to smaller hospitals with an approved product. And they're going to say, well, this is great, but in many cases, for example, a lot of smaller pediatric hospitals only have one hazardous clean room and maybe only one hood in that room. So it may, if it takes two hours to prepare your product, it's not just about the staff that they need to find for each of those doses. It's also that they need to have, they need to have hood space because they can't shut down their oncology infusion area, for example, for two hours to prepare this dose. And so then we start talking about them thinking about doing it in, on odd hours and other things like that, that, that can be really complicated. So I, I do think it's important to think about some of that formulation at the beginning. You know, I think there's other like nuances, like how many syringes is this going to take? And then what does that actually look like when you're doing that infusion? How many, how often do you need to change a syringe or a bag? Can you put it all in a larger bag instead of putting it in multiple bags? These are all things that appear in FDA approved package inserts. And when you actually, you know, review some of these things, you say, couldn't they have done something different? And I, you know, and I think a lot of people are, are saying, well, you know, it, this is what we did. It's, it, you know, there's a little bit of a, just deal with it, Mike. And the reality is, is I can deal with it. 
but there are implications for access to patients more broadly at a societal right. level. And I think that as we see more and more second to market products, one, it's a, it's an opportunity to learn from the past. And two, it may be a competitive advantage for products if they're easier for sites to manage and provide. Yeah, no, that's uh, absolutely true. It, uh, yeah, and when when we pre met, we we talked about this a little bit. It was uh, it was because this was a comment you made at the policy summit. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, everyone should attend the policy summit. Um, <laughs> but setting that aside, um, mm-hmm. so so you know, it, it was really interesting to hear you say that on stage. Like the number of vials, what's what gives, and it's funny because when you said it, I was like, I actually know why. You know, I I know why. Because, you know, when you're working on these programs at the earliest stages, and let's just take, you know, an AAV uh, as an example, uh, a lot of times when you put the material on stability in order to initially set up the expiry expectations for your product, you need to do sort of pulls of the drug uh, in a representative container at a number of time points and oftentimes the tests that you have to do, the assays that you have to run on those drugs require an entire vial. Now, they might not take all the volume in that vial, but because they are being done by different laboratories or different CROs, like you end up pulling an entire vial to send it for one dedicated test. And so oftentimes early in development, teams will uh, err on the side of having a lot of vials. <laughs> for a single mm-hmm. dose in order to minimize the loss of the drug product um, right. to those studies. And, and you're right. I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the transitions that um, it's important for every, you know, program to make, especially, you know, when you're in phase two or when you're sort of further down the line and you know that this product is, uh, is, is doing great uh, and, and has a likelihood of success is to start to, convert the container closers to something that is going to be more more friendly for access um because you're right at, at this point you know there's not a, a ton of things um uh, in your minus 80 freezer <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but 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 eventually as more and more drugs are approved in this space um those freezers are going to fill up and and the more we can be thoughtful about what that path looks like from pulling it out of the freezer storing it in the freezer pulling it out of the freezer and then administering it, um, the the better we're going to be positioning ourselves to help patients. So I, I thought that was um, I thought it was great <laughs> that we, we sort of had this moment, uh, me in the crowd and you on the stage. I was like, oh, I actually know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, why, and you know, why, I, I you, think that, why that happens. I think there's also you know we talk about minus 80s, and I think we we think of this in the gene and cell therapy world as a pretty standard thing. Um, but I think it's really important to note that. In, in most hospitals before the COVID-19 pandemic, there were not minus 80 freezers. And so to bring a product into a hospital for a clinical trial or commercially that was stored frozen at minus 80 was kind of a, a big deal and something that many hospitals would just say, well, we can't do this. We're not going to buy a $20,000 freezer that takes up a lot of space. It's kind of loud. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, there's some ongoing significant operating expense associated with that for a, you know, for one product. Now, all of us brought in, brought, brought in these freezers for uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. And suddenly we're all like, okay, well, now we have these freezers. And fortunately, they're mostly empty now. So, so there's now opportunity, I think, for that. But I, I think um, 
you know, it's definitely something that previously would have been actually a really big barrier. Right. Yeah. No. And and I think that that very much sort of hammers home sort of the the, the change in, uh, if you will, uh, market conditions or operational conditions uh, can have interesting, unexpected impacts on access. So I'd like to maybe maybe uh, change subjects just a little bit, and because we've just talked about sort of the drugs journey mm-hmm. <laughs> in your institution, but but I'm also sort of curious from your perspective, what's the average journey like for a newly diagnosed patient for whom you know uh, the idea is that they they may be appropriate to receive a gene or cell therapy? What is that journey like? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this, this depends somewhat as we think about gene and cell therapies from product to product, you know, there's urgency differences and things like that, that play some role. Um, But I think for, for us, it's really, you know, spelling out for that patient, what that looks like for the, for them. So it's talking about insurance. We have different types of insurance challenges that we can face. And so when I think about those, I think about different types of insurance denials that we can that we can encounter. So one is around just medical necessity, and that could be related to restrictive medical policy. In some cases, especially with some of these accelerated approval, uh, with accelerated approvals, we're seeing insure, some insurers that just say, we're just not going to cover this period. Now, they may end up covering it when you go through a, a, an extensive appeals process. But there's no guarantee of that, and so um, you know I do think that there's a, a big opportunity in the or, in the in the arena to really be thinking about how do we think about accelerated approval and how ought we position those products um, because there there definitely is you know access implications there, and then the other thing I think that doesn't get enough attention is around excluded benefit situations, and so this is where employer sponsored health plans can choose to make decisions about the types of therapies that they will and will not cover. And so, you know, classically, obviously, we think about things like elective plastic surgery or lifestyle medicine types of things, right? And and these are these are the types of things that we generally would think, oh, well, insurer is going to exclude that. But there are insurers who are writing into their policies that gene therapy is not a covered benefit. And so when we encounter these situations, I think there's a variety of different ways that we work through them. But I think that the overarching issue from a societal standpoint is that we really need to be having this conversation in our communities with our chambers of commerce and with others who are making those decisions. Because every time that I've seen that happen, um, and I when I actually talk to the employer who's made in the the person who made that decision. They had no idea about the decision they were making. They didn't realize that there was some that there was some life changing therapy for some kid that that was going to preclude. And the other implication for them is that their stop loss carrier, because it's excluded from their plan, is no longer isn't going to cover it. So it's just like if you you know have a million dollars in art in your home and you don't tell your insurance company about that and your house burns down. Well, the insurance company is not going to cover that art. And so similarly, if you don't say we're going to cover gene therapy, well, your reinsurance policy at that at that for that employer for that insurance policy is not going to cover an excluded something that's not covered by the plan when the plan decides to override that. And so I see I've seen employers who have had to spend far more to actually offer that therapy to their member um, because it was something that had they known 
they they would have absolutely covered in the first place. And so I think getting the word out about gene and cell therapy and that this is an essential medical benefit that should be covered under under health plans is really a critical uh, message that I think everyone needs to hear. I will tell you, there are people involved in the gene and cell therapy industry who are corporations that do not cover gene and cell therapy for their employees. That, it's funny. This is that a was, shocking thing. <laughs> that was going to be my my next question to you. So, uh, you know, thanks thanks for sharing that. I, you know, um, uh, yeah. So, so I I have so many thoughts running through my head right now. Number one, I, I guess for me is encouraging all. I, and they, I guess I wonder do do they are they aware that they're not covering it or is this sort of like they get surprised by it because uh i think that in most cases the the person who's involved in making that decision is far removed from the core business so you know this Got is it. somebody in hr who's making a decision and they're making a decision about coverage for their plan and they're saying look by putting this clause some consultant is telling them by putting this clause in there you'll save a few bucks per per employee per month um, on your ins- on your insurance premium right. for the reinsurance, and so there there's somebody there telling them that, but that yep. is completely disconnected from the people who are making strategic business decisions that they want to become involved in the gene and cell therapy industry. Yeah, no, absolutely. So so I guess uh, one of the things that this might behoove listeners to do is is to to ask ask their benefits manager <laughs> what 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 they're currently covering and and perhaps inspire a conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean <laughs> it, it is it, it is definitely one of those things where family, you know, if some families become more or less public about these situations and right. everything as well and I, and I like I say I, I don't think that these are ill-intentioned decisions. Right. I think exactly. they're uninformed decisions. Right. And, and and so I think just being out there and having that conversation with, um, you know, the major employers in your area or, you know, just with your own company, um, right. I think is really important. And it's a rapidly changing. I mean, again, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, 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 assume that everyone's got the right intentions and it's it's a rapidly evolving field we've got um you know increasing numbers of approvals of these kinds of drugs um and uh it's not surprising you know that uh things just haven't caught up everywhere but but it perhaps it behooves us all to ask the question of of what the current status is at our own workplaces um yeah wow so uh, help me understand this. So so from a from let's say uh you know patient arrives they have their diagnosis uh it's clear that clinically you know this therapy might be uh, appropriate for them and you start to do the discussions around uh with the payers to try and get the reimbursement uh, path all sorted out. What does that length of time what's the range uh of time that that can take? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different situations there. So one is where you actually have um, a contract in place. And so it is my ideal that we have contracts in place so that we're not delaying patient therapy to negotiate a contract. The reality is, is that especially for new therapies, this takes quite a while to get that integrated into umbrella contracts at a hospital. Um, and some of the payers really don't want to engage too much until there is a patient because they just say, well, we may be negotiating something that we'll never actually have to do anything with. And so, you know, ultimately 
we want that's the ideal but a lot of times we have to negotiate a single case agreement and so you know that's a situation where we're going to say this is our case rate and you know really work with the payer to come to something that is agreeable um, and be able to offer that um, that therapy to the patient. And so it, it's a challenge to have that conversation while there's a patient stuck in the middle. Um, but nonetheless, you know, that does occasionally happen. And so um, we want we want to we want to try to you know get those get those conversations going as quickly as possible and as soon as possible. But it, that that hasn't always worked. I, I will say for our team, um, we reach out to our payers when drugs are approved. So if you have something, you know, when a gene therapy is approved, I have, you know, already briefed our um, our finance team and our contracting team on this therapy, and they're immediately trying to reach out to the folks who they work with at each of these payers. But a lot of times they're still waiting on guidance from, you know, their leadership about what what's an agreeable, um, you know, principle upon which to have that discussion. And so it's going to, it takes some time for that to happen. And then, you know, obviously everything that has to go through legal and get that sorted out and get, and and then contracts have start dates on them, which are usually some date in the future. So there's a lot of those details that all have to get worked out. And, And so we, you know, inevitably we end up having to do some single case agreements. Got it. So, so, it sounds like you know when a drug newly comes on the market, um, there's some lead time, right? Uh, it, it, before it's sort of fully interpreted and understood, and uh, sort of what the path is going to be. Um, and then for drugs that are on the market, uh, you may still find these hiccups where uh, you uh, have an exception uh, 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 for the insurance that uh, that patient has, or or something like that. Is is it on the order of you know delaying therapy by by weeks? Is it more like months? Could it be years? What what's what have you seen? Um, so I've seen these single case agreements come together in twenty four hours, and I've wow. seen them take weeks. So okay. um, you know, I, I think overall um, we really try to make it so that it does not delay therapy. Um, I can't say that that you know never is the case though. Um, and so, you know, trying to work pro as proactively as possible is really the important thing there. But, um, obviously we're talking about pretty significant contracts. I think it's, you know, it's interesting when you, as you know, products are brought to market, a lot of times contracting discussions between payers and the manufacturer are happening in advance. Those conversations don't seem to be possible between providers and payers prior to the FDA approval. I mean, granted, obviously, we all no, nobody ever knows what the dollar amount is, you know, what it's going to be priced. But I always say, like, there's principles upon which we can negotiate that, regardless of what that list price is, because it should flow from that. Yep, yep. And and I guess how many other places like Nationwide are there that are are there a lot of? I guess the question is how, how does this scale? Like it, it feels like um, that Nationwide's doing an amazing job of being proactive, reaching out to payers, uh, like trying to engage them early to try and grease the the wheels of of access, if you will. Is this something that basically has to be repeated by every sort of center of excellence for these kinds of therapies? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Any every center is going to deal with these same issues. Um, you know, the level of proactivity may vary between them, but overall, um, you know, you're going to hit these, these bumps one way or another. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's definitely something that 
I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't speak for what everyone else does. I mean, right. I, I obviously have those conversations with different people, but everybody has their own structure for how they make those decisions and what they do. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is also that you're never going to perfectly predict your volumes for these therapies. You're never going to perfectly predict which, um, you know, which patients are going to ultimately qualify uh, and, and be able to do that in advance. So there, there's always going to be some hiccups with all of this. And, and, you know, I will say, you know, even in just doing the prior authorizations, if you've done one prior authorization, you've done one prior authorization. It is much messier to deal with a lot of these gene therapies. Many of them go through specialized offices, which is great. The key is making sure that when you call into a general line, you get redirected back to that specialty office rather than trying to go through, you know, a, a normal, a normal, um, you know, authorization process or something. And so, and when, usually when I get those people involved, they know what's going on. They may not be the ones who are doing payer contracting with hospitals. They may not be the one who ones who are, you know, doing contracting with the manufacturers, but they know who the people are who are doing that. They know who to notify. They know the urgency of the therapy, frankly. I mean, a lot of these, you know, specialized people are really, you know, they're familiar with these, with these patients. They've talked to the patient families as well. They understand that. And so making sure that I'm able to get to somebody who who's able to do that is is pretty important. Right. Yeah, no, it seems like so much of what we do in gene and cell therapy truly is a team effort. And um, it's it's amazing sort of all the different touch points and people involved in order to, you know, bring these therapies eventually to the patient. Um all right, so we're at the we're at the end of our time, and I, I do have a final question, which uh, 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 I'm wondering if you could wave a magic wand today and fix one thing <laughs> about gene and cell uh, therapy development uh, that would totally make your job easier. <laughs> what would what would you change? What would you fix? Yeah, so I, I had a hard time coming up with one thing here. Um, so I've so I've I've two, and they're and I think Perfect. they're they're on two different things. So I think the one is around that operations um, piece and how that works in terms of actually preparing the product, storing the product, things like that. And I think what I would really like is to have manufacturers connect early on, pre IND, or certainly before before, you know, if you're going to do a, a transition study to your commercial product before doing that um, with a group of pharmacy leaders who are in operations. And I will say this is not necessarily the people who you're working with during investigational studies, uh, you know, in, in investigational drug service. This is, you know, operations managers and directors at hospitals around the country who are different sizes and stuff too, you know, basically a representative population of the hospitals who you expect to offer your product. Um, And so what I've generally seen is that those conversations happen too late. And then that's where we end up with different um, situations that are are just suboptimal, I think. Uh, You know, there's sometimes they'll put a specific gauge of a needle and I'm like, I've never used that gauge of a needle. Why is this in this, in this information, you know? And you could have just left that out of the prescribing information and the FDA would have been okay because guess what? No other drug actually says the gauge of needle that you have to use to prepare it. But by but by putting that in there, now suddenly I'm like, okay, now I need to go find, you know, this specific detail. And so I, I think trying to trying to work through some of those things in advance will help make things a lot easier and avoid some of the constant repeat questions after approval. Um, the other thing I think is really about this this situation of insurance exclusions. Um, I think that 
um, you know, being able to say that gene therapy is an essential um, component of healthcare coverage, I think is really important. And I think a lot of people will say, well, you know, this is grandfathered in from before the ACA and stuff. And I would say, let's be clear at the time of the ACA, there were no gene therapies that were FDA approved. So, so, so for any of us who want to say that, um, that this was a grandfathered provision of the ACA, that was certainly never the, never congressional intent of the ACA saying that, that, that ERISA plans could be grandfathered. And there, and I don't think these clauses were in those plans. And so I, I think it's important that we kind of think through some of that as we think about what essential benefits actually are and that um, we have these conversations with large employers and small employers as well um, to make sure that they're offering, um, you know, the full spectrum of care for their, for their employees and their members. And, and to your earlier point, it, it seems like the, you know, for the average listener to this podcast, the, the, the first place they could start maybe is with their own employer, right? Uh, like right. ensuring, yep. ensuring, <laughs> ensuring that, uh, their own employer is, uh, aware of the existence of these kinds of exclusions and make sure, uh, that that's not going to be a problem. Uh, and the place to find this in your plan documents is a section that says plan exclusions. Every plan's okay. going to have them. <laughs> so you will have plan exclusions. It's yeah. okay to have plan exclusions on a health on a healthcare benefit. I mean, you almost have to but right. on some level. But right. so that that's where that's where you want to where you want to look in that and every employer should be willing to provide a, a full a, a packet of the full plan documents to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so, so very much um, for um, for joining us on the podcast today. I, I really, really appreciate, um, number one, that you spent the time with us, but number two, the work that you're doing every day. Uh, I think that uh, sometimes on, you know, early discovery or development teams, like the kind of teams that I serve on, you know, it, it seems like, um, you know, forever <laughs> until these therapies, uh, are actually going to be in the hands of, you know, patients and prescribers. But I think we can't forget that that's where we're headed and we need to start with that end in mind. And so your, your thoughtfulness and, uh, um, and candor today have been fantastic, uh, sort of primers, I think, for, for all our listeners who, who might be earlier in the, the pipeline of developing these drugs. So thank you very much, Michael. Yeah, thank you. thanks a lot. This is, a, this is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. 